0: Hello, and welcome to EDS at Union Now. Today's episode was recorded just after the evangelism tech talk at the 79th General Convention of the Episcopal Church. In it, the very Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas leads a deep dive with the Reverend Scott Gunn and the Reverend Lydia Kelsey Bucklin, an EDS alum, on some of the issues that keep so many in our society away from the church, as well as evolving practices of evangelism that we must embrace to rebuild those bridges. This is the second EDS at Union Now episode, and if you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook. And with that, I will leave it to Dean Douglas for her conversation on evangelism in the Episcopal Church. Good afternoon. I'd like to thank you all for joining us at the 79th General Convention, and on this day, we had a joint session between the House of Deputies and the House of Bishops, discussing one of the presiding bishops' second priority, which is that of evangelism. Joining us in our conversation on evangelism is the Reverend Scott Gunn, who is the Executive Director of Forward Movement, whose mission is to inspire disciples and empower evangelists. Thank you for being with us, Reverend Gunn.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Also joining us today is the Reverend Lydia Kelsey Buckland, who is a 2015 EDS alumna and is the Missioner for Leadership Development and New Initiatives in the Diocese of Northern Michigan. Reverend Buckland, thank you for being with us today.
2: It is my pleasure.
0: We're going to jump right in to this conversation, and I I want to begin by asking uh, Reverend Gunn and Reverend Buckland, what drew you to this work and this interest, this mission field of evangelism? Reverend Gunn.
1: I think really it boils down to uh, two things. One is I'm incredibly grateful for the evangelists who showed me Jesus and taught me about Jesus and brought me to faith. And I also see that our church perhaps could sometimes do better at our evangelism work. And we live in a world that is desperate for signs of God's grace and for hope and for purpose. And so I hope that we can learn to take our evangelism work seriously and get better at it for, the, for our sake and for the sake of the world.
0: Thanks. We're going to talk a little bit about what, you, what it means to get better at it. But Reverend, Reverend Buckland.
2: So it's interesting. My first foray into evangelism wasn't an EDS course, actually, with Liz McGill, the professor, and it was called Evangelism for Liberation. Hmm. And until then, evangelism had been a really gross word in my vocabulary. You know, it was all of the baggage that was just wrapped up in what it meant to be an evangelist and judgment and proselytizing and all of that. And very quickly on in that course, I realized that the good news is about liberation. I mean, it's about always standing with the oppressed, always finding our way out of these dark holes. And I think we spent that whole class learning for ourselves what the good news was for us. And that to me was what made me actually understand what it was and that that's what I wanted to be about because that was the only way to connect with other people and to realize I needed this and someone else needs this too. You know we all have these places that we have to work through and for me Jesus has been my way to find my way through and to find the way of love really and so that class actually called us for our final project we were supposed to go talk to an unlikely person about Jesus and about the good news and so a lot of people like went to bus stops or bars or places and like I'm just odd and like already talked about Jesus to people in those places because they would just ask what I did and I was like we really work for the church. And they're like, what? So we would talk about Jesus. So I went back and talked to the children and youth. I had been serving at the time as the missioner for children and youth um, in the Diocese of Iowa. And I realized that a lot of children and youth had not come back to the church. And these were people who had been huge leaders. Like they had been rectors at happening, they had preached, they had recognized their gifts, they had taken leadership, they were disciples. And for some reason, they weren't going to church anymore. And so I said, I think for my project, I'm going to gather a bunch of these younger folks and just ask, how have we let them down? Like, what has the institution done? And so we gathered around chips and salsa and beer and soda. And they said, I'm embarrassed to go to church because I'm already divorced and I'm only 23. I'm embarrassed because I have substance abuse issues. I don't feel worthy. I'm too hungover on a Sunday morning. All of these reasons, they felt unworthy. To be at church and that actually was my call to priesthood because I realized that was a Eucharistic moment there and that I didn't know too many other priests I could call into that community that they would still authentically be themselves and so that was my commitment really to to bring church out into the world but it all came from this one class around evangelism for liberation
0: well you both said several things that I want to get back to that sort of changes our understanding and notions of evangelism and as well as what are those things that make us skittish when we hear the term evangelism. Before I get there, I want to ask one thing, and that is, of course, today there was this joint session of which was supposed to be teaching session on evangelism, right? What did you hear and what did you not hear in that session today?
1: Yeah, I heard a lot of great stuff. We heard from Bishop Scarf of, of Iowa, talked about his work there. And, and Lydia, of course, can say more about that. What struck me the most was Lauren Winner's talk. And she talked about, and I, I heard this as a, as a person who served formerly as a parish priest, about how clergy aren't CEOs of, of nonprofit organizations, but that were provokers of curiosity, mm. which mm. I thought was a pretty good line. And then also she emphasized another point that i think is very helpful for us that evangelism and social justice are not different they uh, my my colloquialism is two sides of the same coin but that but that evangelism and social justice are companions my paraphrase my bad paraphrase of what she said but i thought that was a helpful reminder and what i didn't hear so much was i think it's easy we can talk about what is evangelism but But I think of it at its simplest as evangelion, uh, you know, the proclamation of good news. And there is, of course, listening is important, and of course, deeds are important, and all kinds of things are important. And as Lydia rightly said, it's not proselytizing. Evangelism is not conversion or winning arguments to prove that I'm right and somebody else is wrong. But evangelism is the proclamation of good news. And I think sometimes in our progressive zeal to talk about evangelism in a way that's comfortable to us, we forget that part of it. And so I I didn't hear a lot about that some, but not a lot about that side of it.
0: Good. Lydia, did you want to add to that? What did you hear and not hear?
2: Yeah, it was great to hear Bishop Scarf. That's the diocese I moved from like a month ago, and so I was on the revival core team, and doing 40 revivals in a year was amazing experience. And um, probably the biggest gift of that work was the testimonies. Was we assumed from the beginning that we would need to set up a few folks to give testimony that so we had like planted a couple folks, and um, and those folks tended to like give these really long testimonies that <laughs> were like had been written out, and we found out so quickly that we didn't need to, and that the Testimonies could have gone on all night because people were so hungry to share their stories Which I think is the heart of it. I think that's maybe I love the community organizing piece that we heard about today as well And that resonates to me as a social worker by education But the piece I didn't hear as much about and that also I think is kind of the hard part about the evangelism is that It's so much about that inner work that we need to do for ourselves you know, like if I can't actually tell you why my life is any better as a follower of Jesus or why I why I live with more integrity or why there's been transformation around me or why I have hope with all the loss and all of the, just the world as it is, then I have no right to evangelize anyone. I'm not going to invite someone to church. If I can't say, that it brings me new life. And that's how I think it's all tied together, like the liturgical revisions and all of that is like, if we're not really feeling it, (laughs) you know, if we're not like really moved by the spirit, then I really have a hard time evangelizing at all. And so that I think the hardest part about evangelism, and that maybe wasn't addressed today, because it's just really a hard thing is like, that own inner work that we have to do to know our own stories and to be able to share that with others. It's a really scary thing because it's really vulnerable, but that's who we're called to be as a church more than anything.
0: Yeah, I want to circle back to something here. you both, literally, you started talking about what brought you to this appreciation for evangelism was recognizing the relationship between evangelism and liberation and in what it meant to the oppressed and scott you talked about the not hearing enough about the relationship between evangelism and social justice. Yet, when I hear you both speak about evangelism, you speak of it in such a way that sometimes for me, it's that old model of someone knocking on your door and saying, oh, come to Jesus and believe in Jesus and come and sit in the pews of my church. And those are the people, you know, Episcopalians, they always say, if you have an Episcopalian who knocks on your door, they aren't going to have anything to say. Those, Those are the people that, you know, on Saturday mornings or wherever, you run from. It's like, oh, my gosh, I don't need to hear that stuff. And it seems to me that that's perhaps the old a model of evangelism that scares us away from this evangelism stuff and talk. So what does it mean then to evangelize and to proclaim the good news? In a world, for instance, where more than half of its population exists That's 3 billion people exist on less than $2.50 a day. They live in poverty. And when a third of the world's population live in extreme poverty, less than a dollar and a quarter a day, what does it mean to evangelize in a nation where you have a large percentage of its children living? in poverty, or experiencing other form of injustice and a disrespect for their humanity. Look, how do we evangelize in this world? Is it about knocking on doors? Is it about talking to Jesus? What's the good news sound like? What's it look like? What's what's the relationship between evangelism in this world?
1: Well, I think that the reminder of how much of the world lives is an important one, and, and we should remember that. It seems to me that, um, and Lydia talked about this, evangelism and liberation. Mm -hmm. Um, Jesus liberates us from all kinds of things, liberates us from our sinful ways. And one of the things I think if we're talking about a North American context, U.S. and Canada among affluent people, most of us consume more than we need to. We're, we're, We're tethered to this treadmill of endless consumption, and then we have to work hard to make more money to pay down our credit cards for the stuff we bought. And it's this vicious cycle that wears us down and it dehumanizes us. And we buy things that are made in factories where people aren't treated well. I mean, the the whole thing is it's a destructive way of living. And I believe that the gospel offers us a way off the treadmill to say that I don't find my value in what I own. I don't find my value in new and shiny things. I don't find my value in in how I look, that I find my value in, in being loved by God. And if I start to get that, then pretty soon I realize that God loves everyone else too, including people who have way less than I do. And then I start looking around and I realize that I don't need all the stuff I have. And I can give away freely some of the, some of the abundance that I have for those who have less. But also, it's not just personal. Evangelism leads me to, to, to strive for justice and peace, it strives me to challenge the systemic sin that, leads us into a society that's racist, that consumes more than it should, that's sexist, and all the isms. And so I think there is actually a connection here. And I think our Savior, Jesus, shows us the way by being being and showing us what perfect love looks like. Mm -hmm. We don't have to wonder what's it look like to to respect the dignity of another human being. Jesus respected the dignity of the woman who was desperate, who reached out to touch his hand the children who were running around, and he, he brought them closer to bless them. You know, he was always crossing the crossing over the fence to bless people at the margins, and I think that's exactly how we Christians are meant to live.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lydia, you look like you wanted to jump in there.
2: So I'm just everything you said, Scott, yes. <laughs> so true. I mean, this idea of perfect love, of the only Way I'm able to get through the day lately, and with everything and all of the burden on our shoulders, with just how I mean, we're in this we're in this crisis as a people, and it's the good news for me is that like there's a dream of a better way, like there like God had this intention for us that like we would learn to be to one another the way that God is to us and the way that Jesus modeled for us. That's actually possible. No, that's not like this, oh, humankind, uh, we just war, we just fight, we're just, that's how we are. My true belief is that we can be more than that, that we can live into the fullness of who we were created to be. And that is the good news. That is, that is the message. I mean, I've been to Swaziland, Africa multiple times. It's the Companion Diocese of Iowa. And the joy on people, and the you know complete poverty, but the joy, the love, the recognition—I mean, the like—you just walk in and people hug you and embrace you—and this idea that life is about so much more. And this theology of abundance versus scarcity is something I've learned a lot about from living in Northern Michigan and then returning to Northern Michigan, where it's a poor diocese, it's a small diocese, but the idea that what we have is enough. You know, whoever's at the table is meant to be at the table and we can always make room for more, but we can use our gifts to serve what the world around us needs. And so when, especially when thinking of the majority of the world, that's not living in the same way that we are and how can, you know, it's so often I'm hearing like how this isn't fair. Like how could God create a world like this? And I just keep going back to the gospel story, that idea that like, there is another way. And That, to me, is what evangelism is all about, is that we have choices to make every day of our lives around the consumptionism, around how we treat one another, around so many things. I mean, politically, and people say, oh, politics doesn't, doesn't, you know, belong in the church, but Jesus was so political, you know, like it's,
0: that's... Right, and we're an embodied religion, and and we, which means that we embody what we believe and, and who we claim we are and we embody the gospel, which leads me, because what I'm hearing and what both you and Scott are saying, Liddy, is this, that evangelism is not simply about proclamation and pro- or maybe I should say, proclamation of the good news is not simply about the word spoken, but it is also about the word embodied. So it's not simply about telling the story. It sounds to me that both of you are also talking about modeling that story, bearing witness to that story, bearing witness to what it means not simply to live by and perhaps not live by the verb to have, but live by the verb to be, And so to witness to the better way, to witness to the good news, I like as Scott puts it, witness to what it means to know that you were sort of loved by God and what that looks like. Which leads me, then when we talk about witnessing as a part of evangelism, what does it mean for our church? to evangelize and to proclaim the good news through word and witness, if you will, in a world that by 2043 will be majority people of non-color, of, of people of uh, non-white people, people of color. In 2020, millennials, which between the age range of what, 20 to 40, will uh, be majority people of color, yet, Our church is at least 86% white and over 60% people over 50. I heard a startling observation today that came out of a session that was being held by the Church Pension Fund, and they said that our church currently is more white than this nation has ever been at its whitest. That's startling. What does it mean? to evangelize, being the church that we are in the world that we are?
1: That's an easy one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it's, it's, I notice that, and it's probably not surprising, a pattern among many kinds of Christians is we love to talk about other people's sins. Mm-hmm. We don't like to talk about our sins, and we Episcopalians don't like very much to look in the mirror and face our own individual racism if if like me if you're a white person, and we don't like to look at our church's racism, and the numbers that you just cited, Dean Douglas, show that, and there are other numbers as well that we could talk about and it seems to me that until our if the demographics of a church community don't reflect the demographics of its local geographic population outside the church, there's always a reason for that difference maybe a church you know th- there's always a reason and i think we have to ask ourselves why is it that episcopal churches almost always there are a few exceptions but not very many almost always skew so heavily white and why does our leadership our house of bishops is 91 percent white 91 percent male wow um, i
0: didn't know it was that high well
1: um it's right around that number plus or minus a percent why hmm. why do why does our leadership look this way and why do we in the church tolerate this there's a lot of hard questions we have to ask, and I, and I will say I have my own sins that I need to confess and repent of, but I will say as a parish priest, I began with a, when I, my time with a not very diverse church, and by the time I left, it was a slightly less diverse church. It was, still wasn't as diverse as it should have been. It wasn't super hard to begin to change it, but it required intentionality and hard work and a willingness to admit uh, when we failed and to listen a lot of it's listening to people. Really, it's the same advice. I go around to talk about evangelism all the time and, and welcoming people to church, and I say, well, ask people what their experience was like mm-hmm. and get people to come into your church who aren't looking for, you know, basically mystery shoppers, mystery worshipers. Get them to come to church and, and then ask them what it was like and listen. And when when a person says, a person of color says, I came to your church and I felt very uncomfortable, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Is there a way that we could make you feel more comfortable if you came again? Well, what would change that? And listen, so it's hard and I, I got nothing else. Maybe, Lydia <laughs> well, you, you said Maybe you do Dean Douglas.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was going to let Lydia uh, jump in.
2: Yeah, I, we have failed. I mean, we need to do better. We are This is not okay. And coming from the Diocese of Northern Michigan, who does things a little bit out of left field sometimes in terms of, you know, people's titles not mattering as much. I think a lot of it is clericalism and the professionalization of theological education has become something that is elite. Yes. Um, how we talk about theology in general is something that, you know, I mean, we, then we joke about the frozen chosen stuff, yeah. you know, that's I mean, it's part of it's part of the legacy of this church. If we really want to change and I know being part of the circles of, for church planting that I know that that's a major effort is to actually plant church planters in their communities. People of color in their communities from within rather than this idea of like little white me, Miss Social Worker, going into inner city Chicago and saying, I'm gonna bring you God, I'm gonna bring you Jesus. I'm like, that's this old model that's not helpful. That's actually not, you know, why don't we equip and and set ourselves aside. Sometimes those of us who are privileged and have had these opportunities and say, you know what? I'm going to sit this one out and allow someone else to have an opportunity on this board, on this commission, on this, whatever it is. That's literally what it's going to take. I think it's people giving up some of the privilege to allow others to join in the circle and then step into it. I mean, I was invited into this church. I grew up, my dad was a bishop. So like I. Totally inner circle. But it was other women, actually, and lay women in particular, who, um, like Bonnie Anderson and like Rodriguez Thompson, who said, you can be a lay leader in this church and, and modeled for me and took me under their wing. And if we're not providing those opportunities to young people of color by other people of color in leadership, and clearly this is the result of that. Like, we've got to make room. And the only reason I think it's not happening is because of the racism that's all around us, is because we really can imagine a church where we, I I don't know, I wish we were at a different spot because it breaks my heart. Those statistics just break my heart. It's not, like, it's not okay. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think hitting up on a last question that I want to ask us, and which is the greatest challenge for us as a church in evangelism, I continue to think and love to hear your, both of your responses to one, that if our church doesn't change, uh, we just are not going to exist in a few years. And that for sure, to me, it's not about bringing people into the church or into sitting in our pews, but it's about us being church in the world and tend to think that we change our sort of model of evangelism to not preaching jesus as i said but doing jesus and doing the work going into communities and just doing the work and that's what brings people in and that you show as you both said let's just show what it means to be loved by god let's just show what justice looks like and let's go do the work and in that way then people will come if we go to them they'll come to us but i agree that it shouldn't be about filling the pews but i also agree that the fact that our church Reflects such a small percentage of not simply our society, but of God's creation. That one of the ways to witnessing is help people to see the fullness of God by appreciating the fullness of God's creation. And our church is not doing that. I was very very struck in the first worship service. I looked around, and I had one of those thought bubbles that popped out of my mouth, and I said. OMG, this church is so white. <laughs> and so I think that's our challenge to uh, who we are as a church. If we are going to indeed proclaim the good news, then we have to model that in who we are. And so let me ask each of you, what do you see? And I think I mean, I'm going to cheat a little bit and ask two questions. And One, what do you see as the greatest challenge for us in terms of evangelism? And What, if we were to become known as the church that did it right, a model of evangelism, what would that look like?
2: So a challenge that I've experienced in my years of ministry really has been this old model of, like you said, Dean Douglas, for filling the pews and like the, what it means to be church in being like this beautiful ritual, almost performance uh, and needing to like meet all the needs of having the altar field and having this and having that. And so for small churches who can't fulfill those needs, always feeling like perpetual failures. And then having that kind of seep out into their own identity in the community because they're like, well, who would want to come to us? We don't have any other youth, so we're not going to attract other youth to our place. Who are we? We don't have a regular priest, so people aren't going to want to come to us. And it's this idea of like, we're just not good enough. But it's all wrapped around this idea of what it even means to be church mm-hmm. and if we really could embody this idea of church out in the world in other places I think that we do liturgy really well and that it's a both and, it's totally a both in. I'm not advocating to get rid of all the pews in all of the church buildings at all and there are places where it just is really not realistic and I I cringe on social media Sunday because I see all these selfies of people in empty buildings and I'm like this is not doing our church any favors like <laughs> This actually looks awful. (laughs) Even with like a couple hundred people, these buildings were made for like so many people. So our buildings, I think, are a little bit of a challenge in the layout. But letting go of that idea of of perfection in terms of how we worship, how we are church, and moving into community centers. We have an opportunity here in our diocese to move into a community center for a place that has kind of been dwindling. And I think those are going to be the signs to be known, to start to be known in the world as like, Oh, those that's the Episcopal that's the Episcopal Church out there doing care for creation. Like that's the Episcopal Church hosting this event. Like that's the Episcopal Church hosting this interfaith dialogue. Like being partners, not doing everything ourselves, but being partners, like joining in where we see the need and where we see that we have something to contribute to it. That's all church. That's all part of who we need to be. Great, great. Right.
1: I agree with all that. And I would also say, uh, in terms of challenges, we, uh, at Forward Movement where I work, we have a ministry called Renewal Works that that collects data on spiritual vitality. And one of the things that we know is that among all denominations, the Episcopal Church is the most spiritually complacent. Mm. That Mm. is, Episcopalians are more likely to feel like they're fine, they don't need to grow, they don't need anything else. And that's a sign, in turn, of, I think, our kind of establishment, country club mentality and, and our, even our slogan, the Episcopal Church welcomes you. We'll be <laughs> kind to you if you come through our doors, mm. which is not, I mean, that's important. It's hospitality, but that's not going out into the community. Mm. And so I think a challenge is disrupting our complacency and yearning to be transformed ourselves and to transform our church and transform our world. I completely agree that evangelism isn't a, a gimmick to fill our churches. And we should never think of it that way. I also think that, that the gospel inherently leads to growth in personal lives and in communities. And if churches are faithfully preaching and teaching and living the gospel, that growth will happen. That the reason to do a practice of evangelism isn't to grow, mm-hmm. but that if we're being the church and we're doing that well, the gospel is irresistible and people will want to be part of our communities. I agree. And unless we're putting up barriers. So if we take down the barriers and leave room for the Holy Spirit to bring people to us, and, and as we go out and meet people, I don't mean bring people to us just across the threshold of our churches, but as we develop relationships and uh, draw people into communities, that our church will, will grow. And some of them won't. And I think that's sad, and we'll weep when they close, and it'll be sad. But that's because they weren't willing to, do, to be a church. They, were, they wanted to be a club. And places that are willing to be a church will grow. And so it seems to me that what, what evangelism looks like and what a, grow, what, a, what a church that does this well looks like is, a, is, is there are signs of transformation. You can see someone's life and you can see this person is different because they know Jesus. This person is different because they're part of a faith community. This person is different because they know that God loves them. This person is doing something that they wouldn't do except for their faith. This is why... Pope Francis gets all this great media, he never does anything, the actual deeds he does aren't particularly remarkable. He chooses to have dinner instead of in his palace, he eats with homeless people.
2: Right.
1: He's just being a Christian. He's giving up his power and his pomp and his privilege of being a Christian. And people are yearning for that kind of authentic, grace-imbued practice of living. And I think if we manage to do some of that, we will grow, our churches will grow and be blessed, and the world will certainly be a better place.
2: And it's countercultural. People aren't expecting it of us.
1: <laughs> yes, because our culture is get more, get more, get more. I want more power, more stuff. It's about getting more. And the Christian life is very different from that. And, I, and it's, it is countercultural. And that's why I think if we, if we can be countercultural, then we're interesting enough to merit someone's attention.
0: What a great place to end this conversation and yet to continue the conversation. And when I think about the hope of our denomination really becoming church, I think of the leadership that I am in dialogue with right now. You, Reverend Buckland, and you, Reverend Gunn. And that if our church would begin to listen to the voices of leaders like you, then we will grow more into what it means to be church. And then that's the beginning of true evangelism. You've left us with many things to think about, many challenges, many questions unasked, uh, and many ways to continue this conversation. I hope that this conversation stimulates others who are out there listening to join this conversation. I hope that it is a conversation that our church continues in new ways. And I thank you both very much for joining us. I thank you for your love of the gospel and for helping to lead our church forward in new ways in being church. Thank you all for being with us. And we hope you join us for our future conversations.